Do I dare ask how many here like to take a needle or like to have a needle? <laughs> I mean, over the last couple years of the pandemic, we've kind of gotten used to it, haven't we? I just had a double inoculation just recently. A couple weeks ago, I got the flu and the next COVID. And we've gotten used to it, but there's this tense anticipation every time you go. As you sit down, you're told to make a fist. <laughs> you're, you're told that this is going to hurt just a little bit, so prepare yourself. And so as the needle is being prepped, you kind of turn away and you hold your breath, waiting for that prick to happen. And it's a prick that can make even the strongest man unconsciously just wince. I have an uncle in Prairie Sound who has macular degeneration. Every month, he has to go to North Bay and actually have a needle put into his eye as part of the treatment. I don't know how he can do it. You know, as adults, we understand that that momentary pain, that momentary suffering that we experience actually has a benefit. We need to get that freezing or we need to get that vaccine. But the truth is, none of us like to have needles, do we? In fact, I think we'd do anything and everything we could to get around it if we didn't have to, because it always brings great stress and anxiety. Kids, though, I don't know if you have kids, they are the worst. If you do, remember taking them either to the doctors or to the dentist, that's even worse. Because they, they, you have to talk to them, you have to prep them, you have to encourage them and hold their hand, tell them what's going to happen, and promise them a reward afterward. You're going to get a lolly at the end of all of this. And if it's with the dentist, they can actually see it coming right into their jaw, can't they? I think this is a good, healthy image to, to give us an understanding of what's going on in the text for us this morning. We, we need to think about the Apostle Peter as a spiritual father. He's holding the hand of the early church and he's, he's preparing them for how they are to glorify Christ if and when the suffering and the pain and the persecution comes. He knows that some of them are already experiencing and he knows that it's only going to get worse. He, he wants to encourage them in how to live for God even when they have to suffer for righteousness' sake. Now, I, I say all this because last week we saw how the Apostle Peter actually picked up the, the theme of submission that he's been working on since the middle of chapter 2. But he's taken that and he's added something to it that we saw last week. And that is that suffering may include suffering for righteousness' sake. And, and by righteousness' sake, I, I mean that we're not sinning. We're not breaking the law. We're not doing anything immor immoral. In fact, we are experiencing that suffering, that persecution, because we are standing faithfully and obeying God's word. And time after time, as we've been in this epistle, we've, we've seen Peter's heart. He, he's, he's got a pastor's heart, doesn't he? He's concerned with the spiritual well-being of these early churches in Asia Minor, what we call Turkey these days. How can these followers of Jesus Christ live for the glory of God in a fallen world, in a world that is increasingly growing hostile to the gospel? How can they remain steadfast in a place of mounting persecution 
and suffering? How can they learn to love life and see good in all the days that the Lord has given them amid persevering in suffering? The big idea I want us to see this morning is this. Don't be afraid. Look at our wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ. Look at who we have as a Savior. Trust in him. And we're going to do this by looking at our verses this morning in two contexts, well, in two sections. The first one, verses 13 through 17, are actually Peter's instructions to the church and to us. Don't fear, honor Christ. And the second, verses 18 through 22, he says, why? Why we are to honor Christ. Why we're not to let fear rule in our hearts. So he says, don't be afraid. Look at the wonderful Savior we have. Trust in him. Peter starts by picking up that theme of suffering for doing good. And he asks the simple question. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous to do what is good? Who can harm us? It's a simple question. But there is a caveat. If we are zealous, if we are fanatical, if we are steadfast on living for God. If we truly understand the foundation, that theological understanding that Peter put down that laid the basis for the whole epistle... The answer is clearly no one. It is God who has called us to be born again of a living hope. It's God who has given us an inheritance that is undefiled, unfading, imperishable. It's God's power that is guiding us and leading us every step of the way until the final culmination of our eternal salvation. If we are called of God to be his own possession, to be a holy priesthood, living stones that are being built up into a spiritual house. And because of all that, sojourners and exiles in this world, then again, the answer is simply no one. No one can separate us from the love of God. That's Romans 8, 31 through 39, isn't it? But again, there's that caveat. If we are zealous... To do good deeds. Now, I don't know your heart. That's where we have to start this morning. Are you zealous for Christ? And is that, does that desire, does that passion actually translate into doing good in this world? Here's the thing. Nothing can separate us from God. No one can actually cause any lasting or real spiritual pain. And if we are called to suffer, even for a little time here, which he says back in chapter 1, verse 6, is going to, it's going to happen. Everyone who is a follower of Jesus Christ is going to experience that. Peter says, you know what? Even if you have to experience that, you're blessed. How are we blessed? Again, chapter 1 tells us that through the testing of fire, our faith is refined like pure gold, which brings glory to Jesus Christ, our Savior. 
Who can harm us? No one. That's why Peter charges us, do not be afraid. Don't be troubled when suffering for righteousness sake comes your way. When, when suffering comes because you haven't done anything, be, be obedient to Jesus Christ. Don't let fear rule your heart. Don't let your attitudes or your actions be so ruled by worry or concern that you stop doing good, that you stop living for God. And that's something that can happen very easily, can't it? Don't be anxious or fearful about hurt. It sounds like a spiritual father taking the child by the hand and saying it's going to hurt for a little bit, but there's a good purpose in this. The truth of it, again, none of us wants to experience suffering. We'll do anything and everything possible to, to keep it away from us. In fact, our culture basically says, if you're experiencing suffering, you're not experiencing your best life now. If I have a workplace that I have to share, a desk or an office with somebody, somebody who goes out of their way to kind of belittle my faith, puts me down all the time, or if I have a neighbor who seems to go out of their way to taunt me all the time, to tease me about my faith, what am I going to do? I'm not going to want to have contact with them, right? I'm going to go in and, and not have to be there when that coworker gets there. I'm not going to have lunch at the same time. I'm going to find a way that I don't have to be around them. And the same thing with our neighbor. If all we're, we're getting is persecution, is defamation, is, is hurt, then I'm not going to want to talk to them. If I need to be part of a study group at, at uni, and I have a choice of going into one group or another, well, I'm going to choose the one where I know that that person who, who teases me, who ridicules me, who hates Jesus, I'm not going to be in that group. That, that's just our fallen tendency. When we experience a fear, our instinct kicks in to avoid it or to run. And when we allow fear to rule our lives, it affects how we live, doesn't it? It puts a weight on our shoulders. We're, we're always looking back thinking, when is it coming? Who, who's there? Who's going to say something? It, it, it paralyzes our decision-making our wills become frosted over. We, we're not acting like we should. For the, for the Christian, living in fear of suffering for doing good actually compromises our faith. Because here we are, instead of just doing what we know pleases God, instead of asking the question, what pleases God, we start asking, well, should I even do it? Well, why am I doing it? Is this the right place to do it? Is it okay? Well, who's going to say what? If I, if I go out for a drink with my co-workers afterward, I may just have a Coke, but they're going to have a harder drink. Are they going to tease me? Are they going to taunt me? If I refuse to fudge the financial books, am I going to get in trouble by my supervisor? These are questions that will go off in our mind when we are facing the potential of suffering for doing right. Peter's telling us, do not let fear rule your life. Don't let your spirit be troubled. 
Don't say, should I or shouldn't I? Just do what you know pleases God. Rather than be steadfast and unwavering in your comment, in your commitment, we tend to move away from that. We tend to, to soften our responses and our actions. But Peter says, be undaunted. Now, that's a word we don't use very much in English today. Be undaunted. It's a wonderful word. It be, be unmoved by the possibility of suffering for doing right. Your conscience must be free of fear if you are desiring to serve God. If you are desiring to love the world as God has called you to love. Instead of fear, Peter says, there must be a commitment to honor Christ, the Lord. Honor him as holy in your hearts. Now, some versions here, instead of say honor, they actually say sanctify him. It, really, the concept is the same. What Peter's saying is that instead of, of him only being part of our desire, he needs to be whole. He is the sole object of our affections. We give him the place of preeminence in our lives, in all things. Uh, our minds must be set on the glory of Christ. Our actions must be centered on the glory of Christ. Our affections must be centered on the glory of Christ. Instead of allowing our hearts to be gripped with fear, they must be gripped by Christ, by the glory that is our Savior. He is the Lord of creation. He is the Lord of our lives. And so we must walk accordingly. Peter says our responsibility in every aspect of our life is to set aside Jesus Christ as the object of everything we do. Instead of shrinking back, of withering under the possibility even of suffering, we need to stand on the rock, which is Jesus Christ. Stand unmoved, undaunted. But that raises a practical question, doesn't it? What does it mean to honor Christ the Lord as holy in our lives? What does that mean? What does it mean specifically in the face of persecution and suffering? Well, Peter gives us two ways. There may be others, but these are the two that he's telling us now. Now, the first is our ongoing verbal testimony to his goodness. This is a verse that we've probably all heard. We've probably all said Many of us who have memorized scripture, this is one of the first things that we do memorize. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Now, first and foremost, our hope is what? It is our, a hope of eternal salvation that is ours in Jesus. Because he died on the cross, our sins are forgiven. And we are now going to be with him for all eternity. That, that is first and foremost the hope that we have. But this hope is also connected to how we live out that hope in this world day in and day out. 
it's not placing our hope in lotteries, in wealth, in our homes, in our jobs. It has to do with how we decide to live in this world, to use our resources for the purposes of God. These become touch points with the world around us as they ask, well, why are you giving so much to the church? Why are you actually serving downtown Toronto? You don't even live downtown. It's a question, well, why aren't you like everyone else? You could afford the big, beautiful car, the big, beautiful house, and the watches and everything else. Why do you, why do you not desire the flash? On the other side, it could be, well, why do you have such a big house for the two of you? Well, we're actually using that as a center for worship. We actually have people into our house all week long in small groups and times of encouragement. And, and so we have something larger because we've committed it to serve the Lord. So how we live out our lives, our resources, how we interact with the world becomes touch points for sharing about Jesus. How we decide to use these things for the purposes of God become events for talking about the glory of Christ. When it says to always be prepared, I don't think that that means that we are to somehow mechanically change the direction of every conversation and squeeze Jesus into the lines and, and make him the center when he had nothing to do with the conversation in the first place. We can direct conversations gently and slowly towards spiritual things, but there are people who would actually say you need to force Jesus into every conversation. What it does mean is that we are to take advantage of every opportunity that does come our way. Every opportunity that presents itself. Why do you hope in Jesus Christ? Why is your hope in Jesus Christ displayed in this way that you live here and now? And that gives you the opportunity. Well, let me tell you who Jesus is. How he's changed my life. How... Now I, I have a life that is enriched in, and focused on him and gives me great joy. Now this may happen in the hardest of situations. You could be at a funeral. But the opportunity presents itself to share your joy, your hope. Here's the thing. As long as we're gentle, as long as we're respectful, as long as we are not putting them down or judging them or being rude to them, we must always give a reason for our hope. We, we must always be prepared to share about Jesus. Why? Because that's how the people of God honor Jesus. One of the things fear does is it makes us shrink back, doesn't it, 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 from actually speaking about Jesus at all. We'll think, well, that person, you know, they reacted badly the last time I talked, or they've had an adverse reaction to a church. Maybe we're afraid of offending someone, or maybe we're afraid of what may happen to us if we just say something. Today, we've gone so far the other way. We're not prepared in season and out of season to share. We have become reluctant witnesses. 
because we're not ready or willing to actually risk anything for Christ. There may be a situation at your work where you know sharing about Jesus may mean losing your job. But if it's God's timing, you are to speak boldly and undauntedly. We might be tempted to actually deny Christ by refusing to own up to be a follower of Jesus. You ever thought about that? If you don't say anything, you are actually denying the gospel in you. You're denying that Jesus is Lord. Again, think about the picture of Peter, a spiritual father. He's encouraging them not to be afraid. Don't deny Christ. And this is coming from a man who knows what it means to deny Christ. Because you remember, after Jesus is arrested, he's before Caiaphas and he's before the Sanhedrin. And a little girl in the market way comes along and says, aren't you a follower of Jesus, the Galilean? And what does Peter say? No, I have nothing to do with him. So the very man who's encouraging them to be bold, to speak of Christ, don't deny, is the same one who knows what it means to be in the heat of the moment and to have that pressure and to not say anything or deny Christ totally. A study by Barna in 2017 has made this astonishing thing. It says that 74% of all Christians across all denominational boards, across this congregation this morning, have fewer than 10 spiritual conversations per year. 74% of us have fewer than 10 spiritual conversations per year. <coughs> Here's the thing. If Peter says that our responsibility to honor Christ the Lord as holy in our life is related to whether or not we even share about him, having 10 or less conversations in a, in, in a year tells us a lot about our heart and how we cherish Christ, doesn't it? Peter says our responsibility is to teach about Christ, to preach about him. So he says, don't shrink back. Don't shrink back even when the possibility of suffering is there. Always give a reason for your hope. Be gentle, be respectful, but speak. The second way we are to honor Christ the Lord as holy in our hearts is by maintaining a good conscience. Now, I don't think Peter is primarily talking about that vertical relationship we have with God, about keeping short accounts of our sins with a holy God, although that's certainly included. I think we can take from the context of chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, it has to do with living honorably before all men. It's the idea, how do we keep a good conscience before this world, living out the gospel? How, how do we maintain a good and, and holy relationship with a, a, a persecuted world? How do we treat people with grace, with love, with respect? How do we live in submission when we're called to live in submission, even if the structures themselves are unjust? How are we to live as sojourners and exiles in this world? P 
Peter says, live a holy life. A life that is demonstrative holy. In a way, demonstrates that holiness. Live a life that upholds the law of God. Live a life that lives out the grace of God. But live the gospel in all of your relationships in this world. And lest we grow weary of doing good. Lest we are tempted not to do good. And our conscience is moving us away from, from actually standing forth for Christ. We're to remember this. One day, in this world or the next, our commitment to good, to living a holy life before a fallen world, a world that wants to, to persecute us, to put us to shame, they will be known as slanderers. We will be justified. So, so here are the two, two ways Peter says the, we are to endure suffering by honoring Christ, the Lord, as holy in our hearts. Always give a reason for our hope and maintain a clear conscience before the world. The second part. Look at the wonderful Savior we have. Trust in him. So, so starting in verse 18, Peter now describes in detail for us why. Why are we not to let fear rule in our lives? Why are we to honor Christ as holy? He says, look at the wonderful Savior we have. Trust him. Now, before we go too far we actually have two huge conundrums in verses 19 through 21. Two big, hairy problems we have to deal with before we get to a meaning. The first is in verse 19. I don't know if you noticed that. It says that after Jesus, having been put to death, the having put to death the flesh, made alive by the Spirit, went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. What's he talking about? Well, over the centuries, there's three different interpretations that, that have come forward. Each one of them are held by different uh, denominations or associations and by different people as a whole. The first is simply this, that Jesus actually went to hell and preached to the souls of those who perished in the flood. The second is this, that Jesus preached in spirit, in a special way, through Noah himself. And they'll go back to chapter 1. And there it talks about how the prophets looked ahead and yearned to know when these things would come, through, come true in Christ. And so the second is that Jesus spoke through the prophet Noah. The third is this. That sometime after his resurrection and before his ascension into heaven... Jesus actually descended into hell where he preached to the evil spirits that were at the center of rebellion, of leading mankind to desire to be like God, that, that led the rebellion in the flood. And basically, Jesus went and heralded the good news to them, the fallen angels. Now, I would fall into that category. Pastor Allen asked me earlier this week, and I said, I I'm still working it through. 
But as I look at 2 Peter 2, as I look at Jude 6 and 7, as I look at Colossians 2, this is where I fall. That sometime after the resurrection and before the ascension, Jesus went and proclaimed the good news of the gospel to the spiritual beings who were imprisoned at the time of the flood. Now, just let me say, to some degree, it doesn't really matter where you land at the end of this, because we're going to see in a second, it, it doesn't change the basic meaning of how we apply it and understand it. But there are differences. The second challenge, the second conundrum, is a little bit bigger. So if you've been kind of thinking of lunch and, and nodding off a little bit, you, you need to kind of sit up for a second here. It's not easy to understand, verses 19 through 21, where it says it, it relates to the concept of God's patience running out with the generation before the flood, the judgment that he brings upon them, and baptism for us today. The flood and God's judgment has something to do with baptism, and it all has to do with enduring suffering for righteousness' sake. Well, we know the story, don't we? All the peoples of, of all of the nations, as they continue to, to flourish and, and grow in number and in science, and they, they started desiring to be like God, and they were desiring to reach the heavens, and this angered God. So in a single act of judgment, God obliterated all life on the earth except for the animals that were in the ark and eight people, including Noah. And he did this by sending a great flood. The eight people who were in the ark, Peter says, were brought safely through the judgment, through the waters, by the ark. Those eight people alone were the only people that believed God was about to bring judgment for sin. Those were the only eight people who believed that God could and would save them through the ark. They were the only ones who were obedient, built the ark, and got on it. So the narrative of the flood, in that story, Water actually symbolizes judgment and wrath. And the ark was the means by which God saved people of faith from judgment. These eight people believed that the ark was God's appointed means of their salvation. Peter says, I want you to know something about baptism. There is a real spiritual connection between what happened to Noah and his family as they were saved and us today as we go through baptism. Now, when we think of baptism, we think of this picture of cleansing, right? And rightfully so. Water, it, it signifies that our need for cleansing, Water signifies that we are actually cleansed by the blood of Christ. When we go down and we come back up again when we follow in the, uh, the waters of baptism. But Peter says here, water baptism is only a picture of the cleansing from sin. It's a cleansing also of God's judgment. Let me just say that again because I don't think I said it right. 
Peter says here, and this is where I have to be tricky, you know, the, the wording makes sense as, as you write it down, but I prayed that I would just be able to share it adequately. What Peter says here is that water baptism isn't only a picture of cleansing from sin, it's also a picture of God's judgment from which we need to be saved. Water can also destroy. And as such, water is a symbol of the awesomeness of God's judgment upon sin. That was Noah's experience. In Luke chapter 12, verse 50, Jesus himself says, that's my experience because I am going to the cross, which is what? A baptism for me. That's Luke 12, verse 50. So water baptism, as you decide to, to follow Christ, and we have this baptismal tank here, and you follow through, it can't save us from sin, can it? The water has no ability to actually cleanse us from sin. It's only a symbol of that cleansing. But it does save us, Peter says, in as far as it is an appeal to God of a clean conscience of having been cleansed from the guilt of sin. Baptism is the necessary outward step of faith that or accompanies our profession that Jesus is our Lord and Savior. It, it is our first major step of obedience. So does baptism itself save us? No. But coupled with the necessary outworking of faith, it has a great significance in defining and cementing our, our, our faith. It is what we call a sign and a seal that verifies our salvation. And here's the key to the whole picture. Peter says it is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm sure you're not getting what Peter is driving at because it took me days to kind of weed through this and get to an understanding myself. I, I know it's deep. I know it's a mystery. Here's the cliff notes. Peter's saying that in the same way those eight people at the time of Noah were saved by faith, by the ark, from God's judgment, symbolized in water, so too we are by faith saved by the, by, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the judgment of our sins. He, he says there is a, a real spiritual equivalence in how God saved, how God worked redemptively then and works redemptively in and through us. So there is a real spiritual equivalence, but you know what? It's also an argument from the greater to the lesser. If God through the ark has saved his people of faith by bringing them through the water after the, in this time of great destruction, how much more can Christ, by his resurrection, now save us from the suffering and pain in this world? First and foremost from our sin, but also from the persecution that may be ours by faith. Look at the wonderful Savior we have. Trust in him. He, he's not made of gopher wood. He's made of flesh and blood. And he came and dwelt amongst us and, and bore upon himself on the cross the burden of sin and died in our place. 
So, so when the fierce winds of persecution come upon us, when the troubled waters rise, when we feel like we're about to drown because of the suffering and the pain, we need to remember that we have a glorious Savior, Jesus Christ, and we need to trust in him alone. Jesus is our ark. There is a direct spiritual equivalence between Noah and the eight that were saved and us today by faith. Why are we not to fear or to allow fear to reign in our hearts, but instead honor Christ? Why do we, we set him aside as holy? For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Look at the wonderful salvation we have. Look at the wonderful savior we have. By his crucifixion, he has triumphed over the guilt of sin. By his resurrection, he has triumphed over the power of sin and death. By the proclamation of his victory, and here's where we go back to that question about preaching to, to the evil spirits in hell. By the proclamation of his victory in the time and the days of Noah, he has triumphed over hell itself. And by his ascension, he has triumphed over all things. Who can harm us? No one. And even this morning, as we worship, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. And all principalities, all powers are there subject to him. Sojourners and exiles are those who, because of their faith, are not deterred about the possibility that there may be persecution in this world for doing good. Instead, they set Christ aside and they honor him, they, they worship him. They sanctify him in their hearts as holy because they are confident that their reward is complete and is waiting for them even now with Christ. So when we experience suffering for doing good, remember that there is only one who ever suffered unjustly. There is only one who did not deserve that. Jesus suffered undeservedly, bearing the weight and the penalty of our sin on the cross, dying in our place. Don't be afraid. Look at the wonderful Savior we have. Trust in him. Honor Jesus as holy in your life in all that you do. Keep a clear conscience before the Lord. Our Heavenly Father.